The Institute of Directors professional development programmes equip learners with the knowledge, skills and mindset to be enterprising and innovative, enabling organisations to become more productive and competitive. The IOD's programmes ensure directors develop an awareness of their interpersonal skills, legal and business knowledge, financial acumen, ethical questioning, decision-making abilities and the highest standards of professional conduct. The IOD is the only institute in the world to offer internationally recognised qualifications designed by directors for directors under Royal Charter. For more information on IOD training, visit iod.com today. Welcome to the Institute of Directors, Leaders and Business podcast, a podcast where we interview directors from all over the UK about their careers and business. I'm your host, Marlene Lowe, founder and director of Tichborne Promotions and long-term IOD member. Neil Bradbrook is the managing director for Ahead Business Consulting. They're experts in adaptive business strategies and managing change, helping businesses to grow, overcome their challenges and achieve their goals. What I really enjoy about our chat with Neil today is his attitudes to teamwork and how to make anyone part of the team. Enjoy. Hi, uh, I'm Neil Bradbrook and I'm Managing Director of Ahead Business Consulting. And what do you do there? Um, so basically we, we help um, businesses and organisations uh, be more effective at what they do. Uh, I used to head up a, a strategy and transformation consultancy down in London helping big corporates uh, and I've, I've been both client side and agency side with consultants and there's so much they have to offer businesses. Um, but all the big consultancies only help big corporates because they've got the deepest pockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it struck me that this is wrong because 98% of the businesses out there are not, are not big uh, and then they're not getting access to the same quality of, of support. And, and that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to address. So um, that, that's what we do. Broadly speaking, we help people with strategy, transformation and leadership. Um, but the, the three of those actually work in tandem a lot of the time. So we help people set the right strategies for success. We help them implement those. And then we help them engage their, their customers and staff to deliver them effectively. So give us a whistle-stop tour of your origin story. My, my origin story? Um, yeah, so I, I was one of these, like a lot of people, I, I never actually really knew what I wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I studied languages at university because uh, I liked them and I wanted a year abroad, um, which I got <laughs> after that. But, uh, that, that, was, that was my start. But um, I, I kind of had this idea... I wanted to do something in business mm-hmm. um, and my dad who was a, a experienced businessman suggested sales and marketing so knowing no better I, I, I went for those roles um, and that was actually really tricky because mm-hmm. uh, every time I went for a job um, I was up against people who either had marketing experience or at least marketing qualifications and I didn't so I remember lots of people said to me look we really like you but you know come back to us once you've got some experience and I thought well yeah but someone's got to give me that chance to get it uh, and then I got that from um, Gus. So they were great universal stores. They did home shopping catalogs. Um, and they, they had kind of two thirds of their head office was in Manchester, well, for the marketing department. And one third was based down in Worcester. And they decided to centralize that all to one place. Um, so they basically had 12 positions they were recruiting for, which meant they could take a punt on someone like me who didn't have any experience. Um, yeah. So I kind of started there. And that was a really good 
grounding in uh, just the, you know, marketing. So I, I kind of really learned the ropes there. Uh, the organization was very old school and didn't, they just kind of wanted people to be cogs and keep churning the cash cow. Uh, and that's not really me. I like to challenge the status quo and say <laughs> why, and surely that can be done better, uh, which kind of the, the culture wasn't as, as good, but I learned an awful lot. Um, but after a couple of years, um, I then got an opportunity to go to GE, who at the time, uh, alongside Microsoft, were the biggest company in the world, although the biggest, the, there were even articles, the biggest company you've never heard of, because they were kind <laughs> of the, the company behind the scenes. Um, but obviously, for, for people in business, it's the company that, that Jack Welch built. Um, and I, I moved there, and I, I mean, I loved GE. It's, yeah. um, other than my, my own company I've got now, it's, it's still my favorite other company I've worked for. Um, <laughs> because they they were the biggest company in the world but actually that they, they operated like a mid-market company right um, because okay. the way that jack had built the empire was very much about empowerment mm -hmm. so they broke the business down to divisions and division down into sub-businesses uh, and then the the managing director uh, of each business was very much empowered i mean as everyone knows everyone was given double digit growth targets every year mm -hmm. and as long as they hit them they were very well rewarded for that but they were given the autonomy and authority to to create um yeah. and the same ran through the whole organization so you didn't have lots of bureaucracy um you could engage very quickly with the leaders make decisions but also the there was no challenge around age or longevity they 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 liked talent uh they mm -hmm. trained people really well uh, really believed a lot in that uh and and if, if you were good enough you were you were, you know your age didn't matter um so uh i i progressed through there quite quickly uh got a lot of training and a lot of the skills that um i've, I've carried with me throughout my career have come from those kind of founding years at ge um uh and they're very they, they kind of have this reputation for being hard nosed for people have this you know the bottom 10 percent removed every year which isn't strictly true but it's not too far from the truth um but actually they are quite people focused uh, and so i learned a lot around the kind of people side then that's where i got my first management positions uh, yeah. and they did they did provide as i say one of my observations is most businesses don't do much in the way of training their managers so mm -hmm. people get promoted to managerial level because they're the best at the grade below um but at ge actually there was probably a little bit more support than most organizations so i think i benefited from that as well yeah um then moving on, so I moved out of marketing, went into data analytics, um, so did lots of data. I was curious there because I, I've always been very numerical and I love numbers, but mm. uh, even my co-colleagues when we did some of these training courses said uh, that you do some of these four blockers and the analyst block would be here and I'd be far, far, far core project instead. <laughs> well, why are you successful at what you do if you're up there? Um, but, but the, actually, the reason I was successful was almost because I was up there, because the problem with the analytical people is we engage directly with our clients. So our clients yeah. were naturally the marketing director of House of Fraser, Debenhams, people like that. Um, and the analyst analysts couldn't really communicate with them effectively. So really smart at what they do. But they didn't see it from the client's point of view and they weren't commercial enough. They were too statistical and driven on the models. Whereas yeah. actually, uh, I, I understood what we could do with the analysis. Um, I was you know the numbers part I was fine with but I started from the big picture on the commercial side because actually my background was marketing anyway so I could yeah. communicate on the language with these people understand their problems and then actually position how we could help them solve their problems rather than just come up with 
probably a more robust statistical model, but one which didn't resonate with them or didn't address their exactly, needs. Yeah. So, so that helped me be really successful there. Um, I moved from that to RBS, um, leading a, still doing analytics, but now encompassing everything. So uh, there's a division of RBS, uh, the managing director had a mission to turn it from a 50 million business into 200 million business in five years. And mm -hmm. he was wanted it to be data driven. So basically he wanted my, my, me and my team to lead and drive that. So that was then being really quite strategic based on data driven strategies. Yeah. Uh, so I did that for a few years, um, helped them on the path and then moved internally with RBS to do kind of strategy and transformation. So this is now starting to move into project management. Although initially it was actually uh, a lot of troubleshooting. Mm -hmm. so my team, it was uh, the brainchild of one of the um, execs because you always have problems in business and yeah. invariably it's given to a team who have a day job and his problem, his issue was, but they can't deal with it properly. So if issues or opportunities arise, I want someone who actually doesn't have that day job. So we wanted to create a team who actually could just pick it up and run with it. So, so that was us. We did lead the five-year strategic planning as well. But on top, other than that, it was basically either opportunities we might look at more generally it was issues so if people were running transformation programs uh, if we got parachuted in it, it was kind of like i joked um it's a bit like the wolf from um uh, pulp fiction so, so <laughs> we'd come in and basically solve, solve the problems uh, and you might think they'd be really worried if we turned up but genuinely they, they were normally really delighted because yeah actually they, they had support and they had people who could actually help solve the problems. So if, if projects or programs were running red, we'd parachute in, get them back on track and then mm. step out again. Uh, but that then really taught me um, about what makes programs successful, what also makes them fail. Um, so, so it can actually, uh, I hadn't even led my own program at that point from start to finish. Uh, but later on when I did that, I kind of having learnt the problem points, I was able to do that much more effectively. Yeah. Um, and then the world fell over. So 2008 happened, crash happened. I was at RBS at that time. Um, and that was, that was interesting. I was actually on holiday in Uganda um, mm -hmm. on a safari and uh, <laughs> we, we were out there. So we had intermittent on, you know, on the tour bus, we had intermittent uh, signals and suddenly someone go, you know, we found out that there was this financial crisis and we weren't quite sure what that meant or not. And then next time someone got a signal, you'd find you'd find that UBS, you know, uh, Lehman Brothers had gone, and then UBS was in trouble. And you're like, do I have a job to go to when I got back? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to join myself in Safari. <laughs> what happens when I get back? <laughs> um, but I, I did still have a job because the government bailed out RBS. Um, but actually, from that, Fred Goodwin left. Uh, Stephen Hester came in, and the first thing he did was bring in McKinsey's as strategic consultants. And they basically said RBS had over diversified. And they did focus back on core and core was uk core was retail and business banking uh, but they'd under invested in this for years so now you needed to go and sort that out and address it and that ended up uh, being a, a two a retail transformation program which was two billion so one billion worth of investment for two billion return uh, and, and that fell to me to actually try and help them set that up um, so i worked in conjunction with some of the people from mckinsey's who were there we got that set up, it ends up being this huge portfolio with 65 different programs underneath it. Uh, and once I got that set up as a kind of thank you for that, they said, you know which programs don't have a leader, go, go and kind of you know, pick, pick one and tell us which you want. And um, I, I ended up taking over um, the, the head of branch sales effectiveness. Mm -hmm. um, most of the programs were cost out ones. Um, this was one of the few ones which had an income generating line. 
Uh, and the irony being I'd, I'd never actually worked in sales and I'd never worked in the branch network. And, and now my role was transforming this. But actually what I liked about it was it was it's all about people and cultural change. So yeah. there'd been 15 years worth, maybe 20 of ingrained behaviors in the branch network where the, the, the customer advisors basically sold what their direction from above was to sell rather than listening to the customers and actually trying to help them with their needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we were addressing that and basically kind of trying to completely unpick that and say, no. And, and that's now what manifests itself since in, in all these PPI claims and mis-selling. You know, we were addressing that before it was actually a regulatory requirement and people have picked yeah. up on it. Um, and it, it, cultural change doesn't cost as much but it's hugely difficult because people don't really like change, right? We get yeah, exactly. embedded in certain ways of behaving. <laughs> but actually, when we got this right, um, and it, it completely transformed the whole culture in the branch network, the experience of the, the customers that they came in. But hearing the people now genuinely listening to them, their aspirations. I mean, the point was we say, you know, come in and just talk to them, ask them where they're at in life, what it is they want to achieve, you know, so people might have holidays they, they'd love to take their family on, but have never been able to afford, or they want to ups, ups, you know, they need a bigger house because they're, they're expanding the family, or they want to downsize or want to retire early, or their daughter's getting married next year. And all these things require finances and, and people have aspirations that maybe they can't achieve. And if yeah. we can actually listen to them and then help them achieve the things they didn't think they'd be able to achieve, wow, right? Mm -hmm. And the customers then were delighted. The staff actually were hugely, they, they found it far more rewarding, funnily enough, helping people <laughs> achieve their goals. And the amazing thing of all, of course, was it sold more, right? So actually by listening to customers and meeting what customers actually want and need, rather than trying to push on them what you want to sell, is better all around. Um, so it was that, was, that was a hugely rewarding program. Mm. Um, I then needed to go down south um, for personal reasons with my wife. Uh, her job was down south. Um, <clears throat> so I left there and I nearly started a consultancy. Well, actually, if you look on Companies House, you'll probably find a record. I, I did, but I just never did anything. <laughs> um, because uh, before I kind of done anything, I, I um, met, uh, so Santander had its own in-house consultancy team uh, and the boss of that twisted my arm to come and join his senior team rather than go off on my own. Yeah. Um, so I did that and we did all their strategic transformation at Santander. So um, they did still have, you know, your, uh, Accentures and everyone else coming in. But actually, when I first joined, we were 80 strong. By the time uh, I left, we had 160. Uh, wow. so, we, so we were a much more cost effective and we knew the business and the same sort of things you might employ external consultants for we did ourselves. Mm. Um, so uh, I led, I mean, I led a 326 million program there for them, completely transforming their branch network. Uh, and that was, that was actually my baby where it was my, my idea. I took the yeah. MD, we took it to Exco, got the money and delivered it. So that, that was a, a particularly proud moment. Um, and, you know, we, we developed our own team and it was all very people focused in, in our team, hugely, you know, believing in development, developing our staff. Uh, loads of young talent we brought through and helped them progress on either internally or, or externally um, and deliver huge value for, for the company. Uh, my, my boss, after a number of years, eventually left and I ended up inheriting the team. So uh, mm -hmm. I ended up leading the team. Uh, and over the seven years I was there, we grew it from 11 million. To become, whilst it was a subsidiary, we, we ran it as a, a sort of separate business as well. 
we yeah. grew it from 11 million to 23 million as well. So that was um, that was quite a success. Um, and then uh, we'd, uh, in the interim time, we'd started a family and come back home to Scotland. So I was doing yeah. the long distance commute every week because that, that job was down in London. So I was flying down <laughs> on Tuesdays and back on Thursdays, um, which kind of worked with one, one daughter. Uh, and when the second daughter was on her way, um, it wasn't going to work anymore. It wasn't fair my wife. And yeah. uh, I, I, I still had... I had the thing that I'd started that company I'd never done anything with and I wanted yeah. to do my own thing. Um, I'd always had this idea I wanted to have my own business at some point and, and this was the right point. So mm-hmm. uh, I managed to negotiate a, an exit from Santander, which gave me uh, enough to start from um, and uh, set up a head business consulting. So, so that's kind of where that came from. So I, I set it up February 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I never actually wanted to do it on my own, uh, although initially I did, um, but then I met... During that year, through a mutual col- uh, connection, um, uh, a guy called Andrew Pollard, who's now my co-director in the business, um, so mm-hmm. he, he came on board. Um, and we were just starting to take off a year later. It takes time to sort of the business. Uh, and then this thing called COVID came in, came along, <laughs> which, um, which was interesting. Um, you, as you probably hope, given what we do, we saw it coming slightly earlier than everyone else, just, just by a couple of weeks. But... Yeah, uh, had some conversations with some of our clients, you know, beginning of March around what, what are you doing to protect yourselves from COVID? And like, it's in China. You know, why, why, <laughs> why are you talking to us about this? Um, but uh, we, we sort of took them to the whole, again, a lot of our ethos is bringing big business consulting, big business operations and, and bringing that to smaller business and organizations to help them. Yeah. Uh, so we took them on the kind of risk management approach of actually there are things you can do and this is how. And, and sort of led them to the journey of they need to get as much money in the bank as possible uh, and, and need to cut back on any unnecessary spend. Uh, mm. the, the problem was it was then really difficult for us to say that we were really absolutely mandatory necessary spend. <laughs> kind of took the view that we had the skills to help uh, and therefore would. So um, we, you know, we, we accept the fact we were gonna take a hit like many businesses on, on our own income. So we offered a number of free webinars. I did leadership webinars for the IOD as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we brought together groups of people just helping them think about how they could pivot their businesses and so on um, and, and you know did a lot of pro bono work on that space in the summer it started coming back and then in October that, uh, last year it just took off completely took off our best month ever um, but you know even better than anything pre-COVID November was our new best month ever still so beating October uh, and, and the business has been really flying so that's kind of uh, a, a, not a whistle stop tour but that's, a, that's the journey I guess <laughs> So what one thing I've noticed throughout all the times that we've talked is you're very passionate about what you do, but it's almost like you've got this inner fire that keeps you going no matter what happens where, because you've got the the sports background, your dad being a business owner, like what, where does that come from? Do you think? Um, yeah, I, I guess I've always, I've always been exceptionally determined. Um, so uh, I, I cycled Land's End to John O'Groats a number of years ago on, on my own and my, my wife sort of said she, she knew I would do it because actually come what may I, I, was, I would never give up and I'd just do it um, and I, I kind of tore a thigh muscle on the last day uh, so every, every single pedal stroke was, was painful but you just grit your teeth and get on so um, I've, I've always had the, a kind of passion and determination to, to and a lot of drive um, I, I am I, again passionate is one of the things I like 
I, I kind of like to find a cause and something I believe in and drive in. I guess mm. in this particular job uh, and what we do now, because you naturally set up your own businesses around your passions anyway, it yeah. is absolutely and exactly what drives me. So, so there's, you're never going to really see that fire dim. Uh, yeah. I love uh, making change and kind of, um, you know, add, adding value and helping people through their problems. Um, and, and, and we get to do that day in, day out through a whole variety of different clients and different problems. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, that's the beauty of your own businesses is you can really build it around what you want and it, that the highs you get running your own business are higher than anything you get in someone else's. Yeah. The flip side is that there is pressure, the stress, there's low times as well. And, you know, particularly during some of last year when COVID was on and you're thinking, you know, are, are we doing the right, right thing? Because ultimately my primary job is actually as, as a father and a husband and I'm, I'm the only breadwinner in the family. So, you know, you, you've, you've got responsibilities there as well. Um, but so, sometimes you kind of just have to um, trust that you are doing the right things and, and, and it will all work out. Yeah. So what one thing that... I, I find interesting and I'd like to get your take on is when you're the owner, you're the founder, you're still involved in the business, you're the figurehead, a lot of the business success is tied to your own success or vice versa, your own success is tied to the business. And if someone doesn't like the business, does that mean they don't like you? Yeah, yeah. How do you overcome that? Is overcome the right word even? It's yeah, I mean, it's, I guess this in person, overcoming it, you can't, right? So, so they are in, intrinsically linked. So um, if the business is a success, it doesn't not make me a successful person, but I'm not being successful. As I say, my primary objectives are, are kind of providing the roof of, 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 of the, uh, for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, if people don't like the business or even if they don't like me, I, you know, getting on with people is important. I think I'm quite a people person, um, but at the same time, um, I kind of and I encourage this to leaders. Leaders aren't actually necessarily there to be liked, but leaders need, do need to be respected. So yeah. um, it, it's if if someone doesn't like the business, that that it's, it's not it doesn't worry me too much. If you like, um, I do always take feedback on board and I'll look at it. Uh, whether well, you know, and when we'll assess it, but then we'll determine whether we think it's something we need to do something about or not. Um, yeah. So, so you know, we'll we'll never we'll never ignore, but whether we necessarily agree or choose to follow it through, who, who knows? Um, but we, you know, as I do think, my whole ethos is very much about people. So mm-hmm. everything we set up is based on the customer at the heart, and, and that kind of goes back to my my story I told earlier that how much value you can drive if you do put the customer genuinely any change you do in a business would the customer want to pay for it because if the answer is no then actually unless it's unless the regulator says you have to you shouldn't be doing it yeah. um and then my, my second ethos is, is is very much on the people side is all about your own team uh mm-hmm. and very much i've always been a firm believer that the the power of the team is, is far more than the power of not just the one, but even the the individuals that make up the team. So if you get the team right, collectively you, you are so much stronger than each you know all of you on your own. Yeah. Uh, I guess that partly comes from my sporting background. So you know, played hockey. It was a was a team sport. Um, uh, even my example I kind of shared from my time at, at GE, where I wasn't the analyst but was really successful. 
that only works because I had really good analysts in my team who were good at that part. Right? <laughs> so if I'd just been the kind of commercial person but couldn't deliver the analysis, that wouldn't have worked. But actually by having that combination where we have different skills that complement each other, that, that makes you far more powerful you can be on your own. And again, where we are today uh, in my business, um, myself and my, my co-director, Andrew, uh, we, we tend to kind of come to the same conclusions, but we, we kind of go a completely different way around it because yeah. we are quite different people. And that, that makes a nice set of complementary skills uh, where we challenge one another. Uh, and I do believe in, you know, I, I don't think any, however good you are, no one person can be right all the time or know all the answers. So, so anyone trying to run a business on their own or make all their answers, you, you, you're not going to be right. So, so let your team come up with solutions and suggest things and, and be open to listen to those, be, be prepared to change your mind, right? So um, that, that's, that's always the kind of mentality I've had with all my teams. Uh, and it's, I, I know it works because everyone in my teams has always told me, you know, how much they benefit from it. They like working in it. People in other teams have often said, can, can we come and join? So <laughs> it, it's, it is that place where if you can get an environment where people enjoy what they do they they feel respected they feel empowered they you know they, they have they know they have authority to do things their voice is heard they can contribute then you get so much more out of people and and then you benefit from that power of the teams because collectively you're so much stronger do you think anyone can become a team member with with having leaders like yourself having that attitude yeah i mean look naturally as human beings we, we kind of are social animals and we like to do things together um so but, but yeah I mean, anyone can be part of a team there's obviously certain you, you do find certain individuals are are maybe a little bit more insular um and and, and certainly um that there, there are certain conditions people have which sometimes mean they they struggle to uh, engage in quite the same way as most of us understand but all of these people are absolutely have huge amounts to offer value. The problem that um, I guess a lot of people have is they see someone like that was maybe too difficult. So it's easier for them not to. Uh, and, I, and I challenge them to say, so, so look for the value you think they can bring. And, and it's not trying to force people into your model. It's, it's how you can flex and uh, welcome them. So, so actually a, a model, which is, if you want to be genuinely inclusive, that, that means that anyone can be part of the team by definition. So, yeah. uh, and if, if, if you're not genuinely inclusive, then uh, that there's some people you're going to turn off and, and then you're missing the opportunity of, of what they could bring to your team. So now I'm, I'm a firm believer that anyone can be part of a team. Uh, it just takes a bit of work on both sides sometimes. What's the first step that someone can take to help building that strong team around them? Self-awareness is probably the first step. Um, so sadly, um, it, it's one of my soapbox moments probably, but uh, I, I do believe most managers are not really given the training to help them. So, so people are put into a managerial role with, without training. We've, we've been helping some clients recently um, and the managers of, of the organization, lovely people. One of them has been doing it for 38 years, the other for 18. Neither of them have, a, have had a day's management training in their life. Mm -hmm. And there were just some basics that they weren't doing. And it's not because they didn't want to do them or chose not to do them. They genuinely didn't know that these are good things to do. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a piece there around helping that. Now, the problem is people either haven't got the training, but they've got the stripes in their arm saying they're managers. So they feel they maybe 
should be the ones making decisions on their own or should be able to do it. Other people are maybe, if, if they are slightly anxious, they're not got skills, they can get defensive and therefore don't want to acknowledge. So the first thing is really self-awareness of, you know, whatever position you're in, even if you're, I know he's just stepped down, but Jeff Bezos and, and chief executive, you know, biggest company in the world sort of thing, you know, it, 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 it can't ever all just be about you. The very best senior managers are, are, are that because they have the strongest teams around them. So uh, and I remember it's one of the things my dad always used to talk about because the, the irony is even when I was sort of 18, 20, my dad would sometimes talk about business problems at home and I didn't end up advising it. And I'm thinking, you're this, you're this experienced business person, why am I advising you? But he actually often says himself, you know, his, his absolute skill was that uh, he never thought he could do it on his own and he always brought really good people around him and yeah. it was the power of the team. Um, but that's really true. So it is, is the self-awareness to think it doesn't have to be me. I, you know, let, let's get the power of the team. Let's ask other people. Uh, it is okay to change your mind. It's, now, sometimes you need to be decisive, but you, you don't just have to make it up. So, you know, you at least need to get facts and get, get advice in, and then you can make a decision based on what you've heard and based on what different people have suggested. Um, so I think that's the first thing is, is self-awareness. Uh, the second part of that then is looking at, you know, uh, if you've got self-awareness, it's, it's being open to change, open to the fact you might not be doing everything right and, and, and could do things differently. The biggest thing I genuinely find with teams, because I've, I've done a lot of work with sort of helping people create cultures of de developing high performance. Mm. Um, and a lot of it is they, they genuinely don't give enough empowerment to the individuals uh, or there's not enough clarity in what their roles are and what they can do and what they can't do. But if, if actually people feel like they are part of it, they understand their role in the overall, you know, they understand the vision, they understand their role in that, and they understand they have autonomy and authority to often do this up to certain reasons, that then you get so much more out of them because they feel respected, they feel they're part of it, they feel they can contribute. Um, and then you, you've genuinely got an organization which, which all pulls together because otherwise you have a whole load of doers who will just do what they're told and won't do what they're not told and won't do anything else in between. And there's only two or three people who are maybe trying to drive it all. And that's just not enough. Yeah. So if you can get everyone driving in the same direction, then, then I mean, it's a bit like rowing a boat, right? You know, if, if you're all pulling in the same direction and all putting effort in, then of course you're going to be so much more effective than if, if there's just two people doing it, or even if there's a couple of people and everyone else every now and then. If there's only one piece of advice that you could pass on to the world, what would it be? Um, I think listen. Mm -hmm. right. So, you know, listen, listen to what your employees have to say, listen to what your customers have to say, uh, listen to other advice you get uh, and take a look. You know, and, as I say, you, you don't have to act on every single thing, but you should listen to it all and then, then make a judgment. The Institute of Directors is in the heart of all major cities and continue to represent your point of view as a business leader, both locally and nationally. Our objective is to ensure that your views are taken into account when the government is reviewing policy, legislation, or seeking the opinions of the wider business community. If you're interested in joining the IOD, please visit www.iod.com.
Join the conversation and share your thoughts on today's episode by engaging with us on Twitter or joining the LinkedIn group.